Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to the show. In this segment of The Next Million, let's focus a little bit on commuting. Anyone can relate to the feeling of wasting precious hours every week in a car or a train. Then the COVID-19 crisis hit and a large percentage of the world stopped commuting. Streets and trains were suddenly empty. Now, it's safe to say the world is getting back to a new normal, but there still remains uncertainty regarding urban mobility in the near future. Now, according to the 2021 census, the number of people commuting to jobs in Metro Vancouver declined by 20% between 2016 and 2021. According to the Rennie Group, the pandemic reduced commuting flows by approximately 34% from what would have been expected in 2021 had there been no pandemic. Now, the city of Vancouver had the most jobs to which people commuted uh, of any municipality in Metro Vancouver at 224 thousand. That's 28% of the regional total. Surrey was next, accounting for about 16% of jobs to which lower uh, lower mainland residents commuted to. That's about 127,000 jobs. And that was followed by Burnaby with about 11% of the jobs. The balance of the region accommodated the remaining 45% of jobs to which lower mainland residents commuted to. Now, of course, not all those commuting to their job do so across municipal borders. In fact, 47% of Metro Vancouver residents commute to a place of work that's located in the same city in which they live. Now, take everything I just said and add a million more residents to Metro Vancouver by 2050. Well, it's an issue our next guest knows very well. Brent Totteron uh, is a uh, city planner. He's an urbanist at Totteron Urban Works. He's a former, formerly chief planner of the city of Vancouver and now advises cities all over the world on city planning needs. Brent, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. That was a bit of a mouthful, but I wanted to sort of put everything into context because it, things are changing, never mind 2050, but even now in a post-pandemic world. Um, just broadly speaking, because so much of impact, so many things that government does uh, in regards to policy impacts commuting, quite frankly. How do you envision a commute in 2050? Um, you know, what would a mor- morning commute potentially look like to you? Well, you know, planners never like to admit this, but my my honest answer is I don't know, and I'm not a futurist. I, I'm not. I don't have. I'm not a big fan of these folks who say this is what the future is going to be like because they're mm-hmm. guessing, mm-hmm. and I always say they're wrong. I just don't know in what direction and by how much yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I'm a city planner, not a city guesser. So I spend my time figuring out based on the challenges we have: climate change, housing crisis, equity crisis, public health crisis, etc. How do we need to change? Not how are we going to change if we just let it happen, but how do we actually need to change? Because planning, city planning is intervention mm-hmm. in, in change. And I'll tell you what we need to do, because it's not that hard to picture what other cities, uh, city regions uh, could look like with a million more people than ours, because there's a lot of those regions out there. We're still a relatively, by global standards, a relatively small region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I work all over the world, so I work in all scales of places. But I'll tell you this. If we want the region to be better, if we want it to be more livable and more sustainable, more equitable, et cetera, et cetera, with a million more people than it is now, mm-hmm. this is the recipe that we need. We need um, more housing. Mm-hmm. We need um, uh, less land used for, for that housing. And in other words, as we add more housing, we can't gobble up more land and more agricultural land, more greenbelt, uh, ALR, et cetera. We need fewer cars, but more trips, 
We're going to be moving more, even with working from home. We're going to have more trips in our day. But what we can't have is more car trips, and we can't have more overall cars. Mm -hmm. We're going to grow people. Here's the, here's the, here's the tagline. Mm -hmm. We grow people, but we can't grow more cars. We know from every place that is car dependent, car overrun, if you are growing cars at an equal rate to your growing people, your region gets worse. You're stuck in traffic. Everybody's stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. So we need to accommodate more trips with less space, with less public cost, with less pollution and lower climate emissions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and, because, and space being a big part of that. So you notice I say more trips, fewer cars. I, don't, I didn't say better cars. Yes. And most of the conversation gets gobbled up in this conversation of, well, we're going to have electric cars being yeah. the common car. We may even have driverless cars, although the jury is still out on that, notwithstanding what the boosters actually say. Mm -hmm. uh, better cars isn't enough. Every study from any uh, credible place shows that although we do need better cars, we need them to emit less. We at the same time need substantially fewer cars. If we're growing too many cars, we're all stuck in gridlock. It's a space problem. In a region like ours, it's as much a space problem as it is an emissions problem. Although, don't get me wrong, emissions are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the lazy narrative out there is don't worry. We're all going to be in electric cars and maybe driverless cars too. Yeah. The truth is... We do need the cars we have to be electric cars, but we need fewer cars and we need fewer car trips. We need more trips by public transit. We need more trips by active transport, walking, biking, micro mobility, biking, bike share, scooters, etc. Mm -hmm. And your good old fashioned feet when you've got the land use where things are close by, like the grocery store or the school that you can walk to. Yeah. So we need... No car dependency. We don't want to be dependent on cars in the suburbs, and in many of our suburbs, we are. And uh, frankly, we need to have fewer cars owned and fewer uh, uh, car trips taken. That's a, a, a result of smart land use decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about your density, your land use mix, having things close by. And I don't need to tell you that's controversial everywhere, but particularly in the suburbs. But frankly, we're going to need to grow our housing in a more dense way, up versus out, mm -hmm. or else we are going to be car dependent and we're going to be gobbling up our ALR and our, and our green belt, et cetera. So, so if, if that's where you're saying we need to go in regards to just, uh, you know, being less car dependent, which I mm -hmm. understand, um, how much of all of this at its core, though, is actually going to be driven by societal change, not talking about less cars, but right. the employer saying, I'll let you work from home two days a week. Right because you can do it on Zoom, uh, or things of that sort. How right. much of that is driving what commuting will look like in 2050? And I presume that your pun is intended, driving. <laughs> I, I do the same. I always use the word driving in that context, too, ironically. Uh, the pandemic has been a game changer. I've been a city planner for 31 years. We have been talking about telecommuting for all of those 31 years. In the mm. 90s, we were predicting that you know within a few years, 25% of people would be commuting by, by, by technology rather than by vehicle or, or foot. Um, it never got above 1% or 2% of trips. And right up to the pandemic, it was not really a thing. 
Uh, but the pandemic changed things. The question is, and the jury is still out on this, is that a permanent change or how much? The better question is how much of it is a permanent change? Because I do believe we're going to be talking about the pandemic as the turning point. But anybody who thinks commuting is going to disappear, yeah. that we're all going to be telecommuting, well, you've already seen the pushback. Right now, we're in a battle between employees and employers on whether or not there's return to the office. There are all sorts of issues, financial, economic issues, social issues issues, etc. at play, power dynamics at play, and we don't know who's going to win. And one of the earliest studies showed uh, in, during the pandemic, I remember saying, seeing that the, the earliest studies showed, I think it was something like a 5% increase in productivity when people worked from home. And everybody said, holy cow, working from home is great, including for businesses. So what are you complaining about, businesses? Mm-hmm. And then a follow-up study showed that after that first six months or year of it, it went from a 5% benefit to something like a 2 or 3% negative based compared to pre-pandemic. In other words, I don't know, I'm I'm thinking people got so used to being at home, suddenly, you know, their their perspective on how to spend their day started to change. Or you can't believe in those studies at all. I honestly don't know. But mm-hmm. but I do know that the, I, I suspect strongly that the result will be something different than we think right now. I have seen so many cities I work in and work with give an answer about what the percent of commute trips will be um, replaced uh, by telecommuting versus cars. And at best, it might be an accurate guess for their city, but it won't be transferable to other cities. And as I've said, I, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see. And we've got to have robust strategies that work no matter what the scenario is, because I know from experience that it's going to be wrong. We just don't know by how much and in what direction. So what we need is robust transportation systems. And we do need to be driving, pun intended, people towards uh, uh, mobility choices that take less space, cost less public money and are less subsidized, have lower emissions, fewer, less pollution, et cetera. And, and, and those are the things that aren't about the better car. Those are the things that are about fewer cars and less car trips. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Brett, uh, Brent Totteron, Sorry, uh, He is a city planner, urbanist at Totteron Urban Works and former uh, chief planner of the city of Vancouver. We're talking about commuting and what commuting uh, needs to look at and the decisions we have to make in this region in regards to uh, the healthy type of uh, commuting. Now, Brent, um, you talked a, a little bit about, you know, what commuting looks like moving forward and all types of commuting. Mm-hmm. And and we can you know there's we can talk about transit we can talk about e bikes and all right. those types of things that that that's an ongoing conversation but is at its core with another million people moving here is it actually also about getting people out of their cars? It is absolutely about fewer car trips, and for fewer car trips with more people, you need less people wanting to or needing to drive. But let's be really clear, because I get tired of this lazy narrative. This isn't about forcing anybody out of their car. The irony is we know, because we understand basic geometry, that if everyone is driving, even with the population we have now, let alone a million more people, nobody moves. That's geometry. That's gridlock. The best thing you can hope for if you're someone who wants to drive or needs to drive, and there are folks out there, are folks out there that do need to drive, the best thing they can hope for is that everyone around them isn't trying to drive too because they're all in front of you stuck in traffic. What you need is a, a situation where through smart land use decisions, through frankly a lot better proactive investment in things like public transit and active transport, etc., you've made public transit, walking, biking, etc., 
attractive to the people who are inclined to consider it. And if enough of those people consider it, then you get fewer trips, less cars. And the people who do need to drive actually have an easier time. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a simple fact that I've learned uh, after doing this for 31 years. Uh, If you're planning for everyone driving, it fails for everyone, including drivers, because you're all stuck in traffic. If If you design a city that's multimodal, that makes walking, biking and public transit easy and attractive, it's better for everyone, including drivers mm-hmm. because i often i'm often standing in front of a, a large crowd of people and if somebody says to me but i need to take my kids to soccer or 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 what have you in, on the weekends or what have you i say well nobody's going to stop you from doing that but the best thing you can hope for is the person sitting beside you wants to walk the other person on the other side of you wants to take the bike and the people behind you want to take public transit because they're not fighting for the same amount of finite space with their large vehicle as you are so this is not a war in the car. That is lazy political narrative or media attempts at getting clicks. This is about cities that work better for everyone, including drivers, because we know that if everyone's driving, nobody's moving. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. Now, uh, every city talks about a great transit system. And, uh, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I take tra- transit uh, uh, at times as well, SkyTrain buses and all that sort of thing. Um, but sometimes I get frustrated. Maybe it's just being a former uh, political reporter for so long, mm-hmm. having sat through too many city council and <laughs> transit <laughs> translic meetings. Is this region capable of capable of building uh, a transit a transit system that can cope with another million people, with twenty one municipalities, uh, each with different perspectives, mm-hmm. uh, with a transit system also that is funded by a seventeen cent per per liter funding model that is actually under threat with every time we sell an electric vehicle, that's one more system, one more person not paying into the system. Mm-hmm. Are we capable of building or at least staying up with this next million that's coming up to build that transit system? Of course we are. And I say that because I work in places that are doing this much smarter than we are. Um, we are getting better in Canada, in British Columbia, in Metro Vancouver, at realizing that A dollar spent on public transit is not a cost. It's an investment. It actually saves public money, Mm -hmm. plus a whole bunch of other benefits, some that you can quantify and some you can't. But we tend to have the conversation horribly, horribly wrong about something like public transit or anything else. We say, well, can we afford to spend on public transit? And yet we never seem to have that conversation about car infrastructure. It's actually ridiculous. So... When you actually understand the dollars and cents of city and region building, you know the things that actually have a good return on investment uh, do result in the public goals that you claim you want, like climate change mitigation, the the things that will actually achieve that. We just need to be a lot more honest and uh, and willing to aggressively connect the dots on our good and bad decision making. And I see that. I ironically help other parts of the world with that very blunt conversation. And I see political bravery. And usually political bravery comes with an honest discourse about the real costs and consequences of doing the wrong thing in many cases. Do you think if we had a transit czar, somebody driving this politically and the narrative politically, because it can't be the transit CEO, there's a limitation mm-hmm. there, you're an elected official, but somebody at a regional level that's maybe elected driving some of these changes, say, look, this is where we're headed, we have to head this way, we can't have everybody in a car, and then perhaps we're missing some of that. Well, in my experience, even a, the, the concept of a transit czar or any kind of czar still answers to somebody who can who can chicken out 
to mm-hmm. put it bluntly, because anybody who appoints a transit czar can fire them if the political heat gets too high. So I'm not convinced that there's a magic bullet like a transit czar. What I do know is that a lot of the decisions we have to make to position our region successfully for a million more people are not going to be popular today because we still don't have the honest discourse about the consequences of continuing the status quo. It's going to take political bravery. It's going to take a lot more honest and candid conversation about the costs and consequences of doing it wrong. And there's going to need to be decisive and brave decision-making, whether that comes from a czar or just our regular elected officials, who I frankly think should be braver and more decisive. Either I've seen all kinds of models, but it's going to take bravery and leadership wherever it comes from. Brent Hodron, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Always enjoy my time with you. Appreciate my pleasure. It.